Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today, and I am with two folks who um, have really been incredible for Share Our Strength and for the worlds in which we operate, both culinary and nonprofit. Dan Cardinale is the CEO of Independent Sector. Dan, thanks for being with us. Billy, it's a delight. And Brent Herrera. Uh, we were together just uh, days three ago. days ago at our dinner uh, at Union Market, and um, we were just talking about my sister is such a big fan of yours. You've been involved with Share Our Strength for a long time, going back to when you lived in Atlanta. Oh, gosh, a decade almost now, yeah. Well, thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. Um, I'm so interested in what both of you do, and I want to talk about that a little bit. But I have to say, Brent, of all the people <laughs> that I've interviewed with, um, I'm really uh, – you're probably the only person whose job I want to have because your website – says that you are, in addition to being a chef <laughs> and a TV personality, a lifestylist <laughs> and a wanderluster. I, and yeah. I, would, I would like to be both a lifestylist. What does a lifestylist do and what's yeah. a wanderluster do? I a think li- I know what the lifestylist I'm just does. impressed that you went to my website. Yeah. I mean, hey. Um, a lifestylist is just somebody who appreciates what your lifestyle is. If your lifestyle is about family, then I want you to explore what that family life looks like. If your family, if your lifestyle is being single, then I want you to live the best single life. And let, well, so let's talk about the food. Where does the food come in? <laughs> uh, I'm Cuban. and Born in Cuba? Uh, born in Havana, raised here in the D.C. area. And food in most of Latin America is the crux and the center of our culture. And everything happens around food. I don't care if it's breakfast, snacking, lunch, dinner, even if it's cafecito, a little shot of espresso. Everything centers around food. So for me uh, and my four siblings, food just kind of drove our family extracurriculars, if you will. So my mom literally cooked six days a week. The only day she took off was Sabbath and uh, fresh meals. And you write about food. Uh, You've got a relatively new book called Modern Pressure Cooker. Yes. Uh, Uh, Tell us. So modern pressure cooking um, is just that. It's about 105 recipes that I share with um, hopefully everybody that will be listening on foods that I've explored around the world, not just my Cuban kitchen. There's only one chapter dedicated to my Cuban cuisine, but foods that I've experienced and had the pleasure of enjoying with other chefs, um, things that I've reverse engineered, inspirations from travel to Latin America, the Caribbean, um, Europe, and all of it made in pressure cookers. So do you have a favorite? I got to ask. Oh, of course, everybody uh, asks this. Oxtail. Rabo encendido. Yeah. And where did you learn that? My mom. Yeah, it's a very classic Cuban West Indian dish. It's super juicy, super tender, and we cook it in a red wine and tomato uh, sauce, jus. Um, It's really robust. And in the pressure cooker, it's done in 25 to 30 minutes where traditionally or conventionally it would be it would take about an hour, a little over an hour. I'm going so. to take your cooking over Dan's. But Dan and I have <laughs> talked about food a lot over the years we because have. before you were at Independent Sector, you were the CEO of Communities and Schools. And oh, we nice. worked a lot on how do you get healthy school meals to kids who need them so that they do better. But talk a little bit, Dan, about your background because I, actually you've got some uh, Latin connections. Mm. You were doing community organizing in Guadalajara. I was. Uh, so I have a deep affection for Latin America. I spent uh, early on in my life, I was exposed to actually the Caribbean, uh, particularly Puerto Rican community mm. in the South Bronx, where I would go down as a high school student, fell in love with Latin culture, and then over time found myself living and working in Mexico and squatter communities. To your point, 
uh, about the and, and what kind of I'm sorry to interrupt, but what kind of work and and what does squatter communities mean? Sure. So uh, super poor people. Uh, there's an urbanization movement happening across the world where folks in rural communities really can't make uh, ends meet anymore. So they travel to urban environments. They're super poor. Often they don't have a lot of education, and so they end up kind of uh, squatting on land that is public land. And over time, uh, and in makeshift housing, or oh in, yeah, uh, or was, out in the open. So a lot of people have seen those pictures of kind of the uh, dilapidated houses or the kind of um, uh, tin roofs and some stone. That was kind of what people started with, and these communities over time sprout up. Uh, you know, there's a a brave soul from a community that that lands for when I was there in, in southern part of Guadalajara in a place called La Mesquitera. And then over time, members from that region, family members, extended family, begin to land. And they begin to build a community. And food plays an incredibly Mm. important part because it's really about communal sharing. Folks are very, very poor. And sometimes someone has work, and other times someone doesn't. And there's you get this sense of kids and extended family coming around. And very wholesome, to your point about fresh food, um, but very simple food. And I spent a lot of time uh, working among those folks and really learning to be with them. And I discovered that they had incredible resiliency and the ability to build their own community. And so uh, I was with the Catholic Church at the time, and we learned to community organize, not so much to them, but with them. Mm -hmm. And we slowly built uh, capacity together to get roads and running water and eventually schools and to stabilize the community. And it was a really powerful experience for me about how food sustained community, but communal life was built around the common table. I have a question. When you say that you worked with them, not to them, in terms of educating them, did you find that they opened up much more with you in terms of identifying what their needs were and letting you know this is where we need help? Because I I have found through traveling um, and even my own family that has immigrated over here from Cuba that they're very modest and since they don't know our political system, our social system, they don't know what to ask and they don't know what they should be looking for. So I'm wondering if your work with them proved to be much more helpful than instead of to them. Um, It's a great uh, it's a great observation. So uh, I was, I'm not a linguist. It okay. took me a long mm. time to really master Spanish. And I remember very distinctly walking up one of these, before it was paved, you know, we were on a hill. And so the water would run down and you'd have these kind of crevices. You'd be walking up and it was a hot day in May, which is the hottest time in Guadalajara. Mm. And I was stumbling along in Spanish and I apologized. And uh, the guy I was with, who ended up becoming a really powerful community leader, stopped me in the street and he said, look, you know, if you're willing to walk our streets, we're willing to help mm. you with Spanish. And it was this kind of leveling of like our humanity. Like we both like bring assets, right. right? And so bring what you can, we'll share what we have, and let's figure this out together. Right. And it really was a powerful lesson that has continued to influence what I do today, actually. That's awesome. And yeah. Dan, for some reason I have in the back of my head, uh, at some point were you uh, thinking about the priesthood? I was. So after college, I uh, joined the Jesuits and was in the process of what's called Jesuit formation, which is this 11-year process towards ordination. The Jesuits have this wonderful training program where they stop you every couple of years and they say, you know, it isn't, it isn't sufficient that you just, many of us kind of slide from one thing to the next and as kind of life presents itself. And one of the things the Jesuits instilled in me was this notion that you actually should be intentional about opting for where you believe you can create the greatest good. Mm. And so they stop you every couple of years and say, now, I just want to make sure, are, are we on the right path right. in life or not? 
And I got to one of those inflection points where I had been working very hard to build the capacity of lay leaders, not formal religious, and I was beginning to feel this contradiction in my life. Like, wait a minute, I think lay leadership is really where the action's at. I, I believe very much in the Catholic Church and still uh, practicing Catholic, but it was really important to me to kind of walk much more in solidarity with those kind of lay Catholics. Well, uh, I'm interested in kind of this um, personal transformation or these pivot points that you you have each taken because Brent if I'm uh, not mistaken you were headed for a career in law oh my gosh oh. yeah uh, wow <laughs> which, and you know, oh. sitting here even talking to you for 10 Jeez. minutes I don't see you in the really in the oh law firm my boardroom. God. I would be terrified but, go across the boardroom for oh I like you yeah <laughs> I I had a very solid and I don't really this is probably my first public forum speaking on this but I yeah I worked in law for 11 years here in DC at different law firms as a corporate paralegal doing you know, back, God, I'm not going to date myself here, but I was doing IPOs for um, IT companies when Dole, the Dulles Corridor had really started picking uh, up. Uh. I worked on the Napster case in California for about two months. I was sent out there to live in, and play and work. Uh, not in that order. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I had a really strong career in law and I loved it. I love uh, legal rhetoric. I love policy. I like um, understanding um, how to make a formal argument on an issue that you firmly believe in. Um, and yeah, I wanted to be this amazing attorney, but then just kind of fell and settled into this path of working for attorneys, but really disliking it toward the end of my career because I was working gruesome hours, particularly toward the end, I was working with uh, some criminal attorneys. We had just acquired a criminal practice from Philadelphia here at a firm in DC. And we were representing some of the 9-11 martyrs, and I had a conflict with that. Uh, we were representing two um, Americans, and I believe they had uh, Middle Eastern passwords. Please don't quote me on that. But when I say martyrs, I mean people that supported, allegedly supported 9-11 and uh, provided uh, financial support for families uh, of family members that were involved in the actual 9-11 attacks. Um, I was preparing depositions for a couple of guys that were about to go on trial in Florida. And I wasn't mortified, but I was, again, ethically and morally just conflicted. And I understand, you know, our legal system provides for due process and everyone has equal rights or should have equal rights to representation. And that's the role that we played, and I just couldn't sleep at night. So... Got intervened and I got laid off in 2005 and I got my little pink slip unbeknownst to even my attorneys in the office. I mean, they were shocked um, mm -hmm. and I had a couple hours to get out of there and I had a lateral interview the next day to go to another firm. And I was like, this is my opportunity to just get out and not come back. And so I stepped out on faith, had zero money saved up. And I just prayed that God would allow me to find my way some way, somehow. And sure enough, I did. I've never looked back, and it's been the biggest blessing of my life. Wow. I would yeah, not I have anticipated yeah. that at yeah. all. And I loved what I did, and I was honestly, modestly very good at what I did. I mean, I love speaking. I love writing. Um, the lo the was, law yeah, does yeah. teach you to build a I went to law school. And did you? I, yeah. I went to GW Law and got my law degree, but I never wanted to practice. But I, in retrospect, I realized it does teach you to build a case. It teaches you to make absolutely. an argument, as you said, and to anticipate what the other exactly. side's argument is going to be and then, and then make your argument stronger. So it's pretty good training. So can I just ask you a question? Because yeah. I, um, so I, I read your background coming oh. into this, and I, was, uh, I knew the connection with Billy, so I just assumed you were going to be uh, an interesting person, and you are clearly that way. 
But I've never thought about the uh, something that you just at least made me think about. I'm curious your thoughts on this, and that is someone who pays attention to lifestyle. You, the, the beginning of the conversation, you're like, I'm kind of agnostic. Wherever people want to build their life, that's where I help them kind of focus by integrating what you believe with all that you do. And you're kind of holding yourself out to say, look, you can you can do almost anything and still be really kind of constructive about the world. Well, I think I think that people lose sight of the bigger picture, if you will. I mean, it's kind of cliche-ish, but we're so in the insta moment, right? What am I doing right now? Or how do I look right now? So you're listening to Bren Herrera <laughs> and Dan Cardinale here on Ad Passion and Stir. Dan, in a broad sense, uh, independent sector, of which your CEO does this in a very big way in terms of being kind of like the, the beacon for the nonprofit sector, which is so diverse and so all-inclusive of people who have basically made that lifestyle choice to, I'm, I'm going to be involved in the community. Uh, maybe it's the local community. Maybe it's the national community. Talk about a little bit about how you're trying to do that through independent sector. So I think uh, there are a couple things. Uh, first of all, I think the the social sector is vast in the United States, right? There are about 1.5 million nonprofits. Mm. It mobilizes 11 million professional staff, employees of those nonprofits every year, and then another 60-plus million people. So one in four Americans are actually engaged in the work Brent is talking about, this sense of tapping into their deep beliefs and then acting. It is one of the great jewels of America that we have this incredible history really from our founding, that people will get together. If they have a belief, they, it's individuals acting for the public good. It's really a remarkable quality. So we have this incredibly strong and diverse nonprofit and philanthropic sector. You know, you have uh, arts organizations who are building culture and community. You have um, environmental organizations that are protecting land and working on research. You have, um, you know, nonprofits doing advocacy and launching campaigns. And you know, the No Hungry campaign is a great example where, you know, Billy, you innovated a strategy whereby you just tinkered slightly with the way lunch programs were delivered and unleashed amazing results for kids and their educational future. And that there's an organization in America that thinks and is passionate about that. Mm -hmm. And there are 1.5 million of those across the U.S. So our job at Independent Sector is to do two things. One, to try and bring that community to get together and celebrate the fact that we have this incredible sector that is not government, that is not for profit, and they are doing remarkable work. I'll give an example of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation many, many years ago. People don't know this, invested in 911. Now it is a public good that government has picked up, and it is the backbone of safety in America. It was the social sector nonprofits and philanthropy saying, we think there's an important contribution that can be made here. So uh, our job is to bring that community together, and then we also do public policy work. But somewhat paradoxically from what you're saying, though, isn't there also kind of a perception that the social sector is not as strong as the business sector, not as robust, not as professional, not as strong as the government yeah. sector? I always I, feel like, I mean, having been in this sector for 30 years, I always feel like people see us a little bit uh, a step down from uh, the, the, the professionals. So now, I, now, Billy, excuse me real quick to interject. Now, do you say that from the perspective of understanding that perhaps, you know, they say put your money where your mouth is, right? So is it because money talks that people feel that the social sector isn't as powerful? Or is it because people are afraid to really speak their mind? Because I, I think that it's, I think that the social sector has 
the potential of having far more impact. Well, I do strength. too. I yeah. do too, which is Obviously, why I'm, yeah. which which is is why why I'm there. Which is why you do what you do, right? But, <laughs> but I think a lot of, you know, there are a lot of constraints put on the sector and a lot of reasons why um, people don't always see nonprofit organizations as the most effective way of getting something yeah. done, even though we've had these spectacular results that you've referred to. So um, uh, per a personal anecdote. I'll never forget one time I was sitting, um, I used to, at Communities and Schools, our offices used to be in Old Town. There was a mm -hmm. COSI on the corner there. And I was sitting talking to a guy who had just been fired from a large banking uh, institution. And he was saying, you know, I, I really want, I'm, I got a great severance. I'd like to spend some time doing some good um, for about a year, year and a half. And then I'd like to get back into the real world. Mm -hmm. And he paused right. and looked at me with big, wide eyes, realizing what he had just said to right. me. And so I, you know, I said to him, so tell me about what the real world, what, you know, are you coming to this nonprofit sector because it's a, it's a break? You're going to take on the responsibility of feeding hungry kids because it's a break? Or you're going to work on social justice issues to change policies that could unleash, you know, a, a much more just uh, public education system because it's a break? And it was a really tense conversation for us. And I think that there is a prevailing uh, sense that in the social sector, we're weak professionals, um, that we couldn't make it in business or government. And so we're, we kind of pick up You the don't tricks. have to pass a bar exam, That's right? right. To, right. Be, yeah, to exactly. be in the sector. I yeah, mean, right. so there's, so the access is maybe, um, seems more, you know, um, doable for it's a lot lenient, of people. Yeah. Lenient. So not nonprofits and philanthropic institutions are critically important to America because they often are working on those issues that neither government nor market strategies are able to address. And so it's, I think, quite defensible to say that many, many, many social sector institutions are knitting the fabric or making the community more healthy in ways that government or business are unable to do. So in, in many regards, they are a much more effective organization than either business or government can be. And yet they are often looked at as being uh, subpar to those two institutions. So if you think about cancer research, if you think about uh, in the field that I'm most familiar with, social emotional learning, for many, many years there was a sense that, oh, you know, poor kids are showing up to school, they're just lazy. Turns out because of works of universities, nonprofit universities, nonprofit uh, working in communities, um, uh, research institutions, that there we've discovered that there's something called toxicity in the brain, that poverty actually unleashes a set of physiological responses which shut down poor kids' ability to learn. And so they aren't lazy. They are, in fact, um, physiologically compromised. And so it was, in fact, the social sector that discovered this insight, and now it has changed the way public education is operating. So it's a perfect example of being looked down upon when, in fact, there was a kind of intervention that could improve the way all Americans now go to school. And Dan, uh, you know, I always, I also feel that there might, we might be uh, working against a little bit of a time lag here because there was a point at which the social sector was not as robust as it is today, where it was not necessarily uh, the opportunity for a, um, a lifelong professional career. Uh, but I think the social sector is caught up in a big way and public perception maybe hasn't caught up to it. I think that's right. So one of the things at, at independent sector that we're working on is to tell the story of the sector. And it's robust. It's, it's one in 10 Americans work in the social sector, and one in four Americans are a part of the social sector. So it is 
It is, um, you know, uh, it employs 11.5 million people and adds a trillion dollars to the economy. So I think that there is a misperception of its size and scope and what it contributes to society. So it's it's part of it is just we as a sector haven't gone, done a good job telling our own story. You know, if you've ever gone into a community-based organization and met the extraordinarily heroic folks that are willing to really suppress their own desire for wealth or um, praise in service of bettering the community. And I've seen extraordinarily wealthy people give up a fair amount of their wealth and prestige to be able to find meaning to do good in the work. There's something about the social sector that humanizes us in a fundamental way that I think often government and business are, it's tougher to find, not impossible. Well, Bill, I heard one of your podcasts last week, uh, and pardon me for not remembering your guest's name, but he was uh, a senior trader at a hedge fund firm, and he transitioned. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was Sam Polk, from, okay. uh, who was at a hedge fund and is now running a thing called uh, the Daily Table okay. uh, mm. and Grocery Ships. So yeah. I, was, I was listening to this. Every pod- table. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I was listening to the conversation, and I found it remarkable that this guy at one point, at the at the expense of America's demise, right? What was it, 2008, 2009, when the market crashed? And he's like, we were making money off of this crash, and we were making money off of everyone burning. And he said for him it was a moment where he was like, this is this. There's something wrong with this picture. And I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but the I, the idea that somebody's able to step back from a situation that uh, ticks. And you're able to say, there's something better that I could do here. I have, there's got to be much more to my life than, you know, making other people rich yeah. and even making my pockets fatter, um, which is all great because we all need to keep the lights on and drive our car and feed our families. There, there, there has to be a bigger, a bigger impact and a bigger way of doing. But you're a great example of something that I think is changing. And that is that there used to be this notion that you had to go out, make a lot of money at whatever um, kind of whatever business you could. And then once you had amassed enough fortune, then you could start doing good. And I I think, and Billy, you've been a great example of this from really the beginning of Share Our Strength, where you created opportunities for profitable businesses to partner in very strategic ways so that the actual doing of business promoted the common Promotes, correct. And I I still think there is this great divide. Um, But I think we're living in an era where this is beginning to explode, where companies, we're seeing this more and more at independent sector. We bring a number of, of, of new board members on whose companies are really looking to create this double bottom line of how do you do good and do well at the same time and measure that so that it provides stockholder, stockholder value. So I, I, I'm very, very optimistic about the future, but um, I do think that there is a deep misperception of the social sector and a somewhat um, uh, naive um, perception that we're kind of second-class citizens. I think that the general public and those that haven't been convinced necessarily to get involved in the social sector is that they want to see a tangible difference, right? So if we're able, if what we do uh, can promote these situations where they can actually see the change that we're making, I think that can more easily inspire yes. them to get involved, right? So they want, they people want data, right? So I have a good friend oh, well, who's... Dan, Dan's lighting up now <laughs> because so, this is Dan's uh, thing. Right, so... Um, Performance those, measurement, right. impact measurement. No, people you're, wanted you're, people... You're absolutely right. People, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not into data. I'm not into statistics. I don't know the numbers, if you will. I like to speak and I like to use my platform to inspire these, these situations. But I think 
from the outside looking in, if I had to guess, Dan, maybe you can educate me here. If people want to see metrics, people want to see tangible, visible. They want to be able to, to attach before they're convinced that this is something that they can do. I think in their hearts, because I think deep down we're all, I, think, I want to believe that deep down we all have good in our hearts. But we need to be, we need to see that little, we need to see that chart. Right. So right? that you, you know, at you least hit, know that it exists. Or at least <laughs> right. know that the chart <laughs> right. exists. But Brenda, you hit the actual problem and I think the wonderful challenge. And that is when we're motivated by deep values and a sense of love or compassion, and then to try and translate that into metrics, that's where there's been this great kind of difficult conversation. I remember very early on with communities and schools when we were beginning to really drive evidence-based practice, hearing from our uh, field folks like, you can't measure love, and how dare you try and do that? And over time, what we, we, we showed them is actually you can. You can't exhaust the measurement of love, but you can translate love into making a difference in young people's lives. And I think that's true across the social sector. Some things are much easier Meaning than Meaning you can measure, do they stay in school longer if they're getting the right? love they so need? Do they that's per, right. you know, achieve more? Do they have the resources that they need, the that's mentors right. that they need? And what it does is it begins to refine for the individual what love can mean. So, for example, if you really care about kids and you want to be in relationship with them, and then all of a sudden you, you realize that if I'm in relationship with them, I want to break the cycle of poverty. Well, what is the best way to do that? Well, actually getting an education so each individual can make a free choice sure. about how she or he wants to live their life. And so all of a sudden someone's saying, wow, my love is best channeled if I can help this kid get educated. And they begin to then have intentionality with real kind of drive for how they express love. That, to me, is one of the things the social sector can do. You see this in the environment, in the arts. It's applicable. It's harder to measure, and you, there's still a lot of work to do. The one thing I would say is that donors, whether private or public, do not fund nonprofits to be able to measure effectively what they do, and yet they hold them mm. accountable. Right. They hold yeah. us accountable to yeah. for metric, yeah. but they're unwilling to fund it. So right. I'll have donors say, it's, community schools, I want all of my money going to program, and I want the results like, okay, you can't have both, You can't right. right? If you want results, you have to actually enable us by funding us to be able to measure what we're doing and, and improve over time. Right. So it's a great quandary we're in right now. But, I mean, the reason this conversation is so important to me is it's not a hypothetical conversation. In a real-time way, there are tens of thousands of young people, uh, some who are coming out of college, some right. who are coming out of community college. It might be Bronx Community College, or it might be Dartmouth or Brown, or it might be uh, a trade, or maybe they've uh, been in the Peace Corps or yeah. done AmeriCorps or what have you, and they're trying, to, they're trying to make a decision. They're worried about the country. They're trying to figure out, do I make $10 million first and then give some of that back through a family foundation? Do I run for office and try to be mayor and then governor? Or do I work at a nonprofit like Share Our Strength or Teach for America or or Kaboom, or cities, city communities in schools. And so for young people to know that this, is, that this sector is a viable option and that you can actually be transformed yourself in terms of your own lifestyle, you can have that personal transformation, but also transform communities, I think is, is critical. And as somebody who, you know, we have 250 staff now that share our strength. That's and, incredible. You know, yeah. so, and so we're hiring, you know, with just, nat they're young, and with natural turnover, we're probably hiring 20 or 30 or 40 people a year as we continue to grow. And at numbers. Uh, so that talent pool, having the best people in the country feel like this is a place I want to be becomes very important to our ability to succeed. Well, so even more so, if you think about it, many social sector institutions take on the most difficult and intractable problems in the world. And so you actually, to your point, want 
the, the nations of the world's best talent addressing the most difficult challenges. That's good for everybody in the planet. But how have you identified that these young talents can sympathize, let alone empathize, with one of these most tragic human problems if they've not experienced it themselves, right? So, and I, I can use That's my- That's a big yeah, deal. Yeah, it's a great how, question. How, how do you get these millennials, if you will, to, because I think that they, everybody wants a voice, right? Everybody wants to be seen and everybody wants to be heard. I think that that's innately humanistic of us, right? Right or wrong. So how do you give these young talents in a social construct where everybody wants to be seen, how do you convince them that they can champion and advocate for these tragic human problems that where they can actually have true impact if they've not necessarily been affected by it adversely? So you uh, gave an earlier story that I think cracks the answer to your question. You were uh, at the last phase of your law career in a situation where you were advocating for people that had a right, which you believed in, for due due process, and yet you had an ability to say, wait a minute, this is in conflict with how I want to live my life. And you had, you didn't say it, but I intuited (laughs) and pushed back that you had some empathy for those Americans who had died and their families. Oh, gosh, I remember 9-11, like, and I know this conversation's not about that, but I remember it like the back of my hand. I was living on Duke Street in Alexandria, and I had the day off because I had a little ant infestation in my apartment, and I was watching the Today Show, and I just, I I saw it all happen in front of me. And I remember going back to work literally the next day at a law firm. And just being glued to my monitor, watching these horrific images. Right. Yeah. But you, so you, you weren't either a victim or right. a family, and yet you were able to very much kind of empathize, and that cracked open for you an ability to change fundamentally how you were going to live your life. One of the things I'd like to ask you as we start to wrap up, which we need to do, is how how is the current political situation, which feels so extreme, and I think to both Democrats and Republicans, it feels we're living in an extreme. A political time, uh, has that created uh, a, an additional sense of urgency for people, both in terms of changing their lives, in terms of being involved in the community? I mean, I've heard from a lot of folks who, over the last few months who have said, you know, I've kind of been sitting on the sidelines. My life's been good. I, I feel like I've got to get involved now because, and, and you know, the head of the Food Network the other day told me that um, the CEO of the Food Network, Kathleen Finch, told me that uh, one of the reasons that uh, their viewership is a little bit down is their analytics show that people are watching, an average American is watching an additional hour of news, of news every <laughs> yeah, day. Yeah, That's yeah. spread across the entire country. So clearly people are, are yeah. obsessed with what's going on and they're trying to f- figure out where they fit in it. How do you think of that, both from a point of view of somebody that works with individuals who are trying to shape their own lives, and how do you think of it in an organizational way? There are a couple things. One, um, I, I am and our organization is deeply concerned about this polarization, this everyone going to their corners and really throwing Molotov. That's the default mode right that's now. That's the default right? mode. And you I start worry, there. Yeah, you don't end up there. You start there. That's right. And so... Our organization has, with the partnership of the Fetzer Institute, which is in Western Michigan, begun to explore, we'll be doing this this summer, dinners. Dinners with people of difference. Mm. Because food, bringing people together, you know, a meal is common to everybody. And to begin to have just conversations about what you believe and why you hold the values that you do. 
because our deep conviction and experience is if you can find common ground, and most people can, even when you're politically or religiously different, on similar sets of things like values and trust and love and loyalty to those you care about, those are powerful common ground that then allow folks to be able to manage difference in a really powerful way. Um, and then there are, I'll give you an example, there's a, the Chicago Community Trust innovated about four years ago, something called On the Table, which is an opportunity to, over a meal, food again, bringing people to have a conversation, a public conversation about whatever they want. The notion is bring to the table what you're not talking about and need to in community. There is a sentiment in this country where or organizations and people are really want to heal. And I think social sector institutions are one of the places where this can take place in a way that's unique and I think really quite privileged. So we're very strong about accelerating that impact, holding out um, examples of it, sharing it with folks, and then doing it ourselves in the very way we go about doing our work. You know, so to, to answer Billy's question very quickly, I think that people, to, to dance uh, nature and your scope of work, they want data. So this whole uh, atmosphere and, and temperature that we're living in, I think people want to see numbers. So how are these policies affecting us? So where are the numbers? The farm bill, the different bills that the current administration is, is sure, threatening yeah. to, to kill. How are those numbers really impacting? And then that's when I think people will start realizing, oh, my God, this is for real. Like, this is not just political rhetoric. This is not just platform talk. This is actually going to affect the way that we live our life, the way that our, children's, our children live our, their lives. And so when they, when they see these numbers, I think that's when people will get more motivated Hopefully, to not just yeah. watch an extra hour of right. news, but, but to, to actually get involved. So I think that when we, people like ourselves, have the information readily available, I think that we have a responsibility, if you will, to go out and have these conversations, if it's at the dinner table, if it's through social media, if it's um, at events, and you just happen to broker a conversation with somebody where you can impart some information. Totally agree. And the symbolism, yeah. most of us, you know, experienced our meals with family. And so when you sit down with a group of strangers and a meal, it engenders a sense, these people aren't so other to me. So the, the, the joy of the actual eating and the symbolism of sitting among those you trust or potentially could trust is just so powerful. Um, are, are Brent and I too like-minded to get invited to the same dinner? No, no. <laughs> or will you consider the it? Same dinner? The, yes. same, the same, same, same dinner? Yeah, yeah we might. Well, we can put this on opposite ends of the table. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. Know, I, was, I was in Israel a couple of years ago uh, with this great organization that took me there for 10 days to explore the food culture. And I stayed... I stayed for four days on my own, and I was scared. I'm not even going to lie. And I've traveled quite a bit on my own. Uh, but I was really determined to go into the West Bank and wow. just kind of see okay. what was really going on. And my mother was like, if you dare, I was like, I'm going to pray, and I'll be fine. Uh, I don't speak the language, but I, I, I trust that I'll be fine. And sure enough, I was, obviously. But I took a driver from Jerusalem, um, excuse me, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And he was Palestinian. And I recorded the conversation, unbeknownst to him, which is why I haven't done anything with it, because I probably violated his rights. Uh, but he was, it was really great to hear his perspective that I hadn't heard for the, on the previous seven days, his perspective that he wants unity and he wants the Israelis and the Palestinians to get along. And obviously this is not, I'm not going in that direction. But my, I, I thought in that conversation, I was like, imagine the, because I had been there exploring food, right? And I had explored food all the way in, in, in Jaffa, I mean, excuse me, in um, Akko, uh, to Tel Aviv, to Jerusalem, to all these different parts of the country, and all these different cultures. And I'm like, imagine, there's such a 
conflict-ridden place in this world, imagine how all this amazing food could really play a role in uniting and having a more meaningful conversation or a more impactful conversation or a more constructive conversation. And they have this tremendous asset right at their fingertips. And I don't know if it's being really used in that way. And obviously, this isn't just restricted to Israel and Palestine. I mean, this could be, we could apply this to everywhere around the world. I mean, here in D.C., but. I mean, the thing that we've seen over and over and over and heard over and over again in these conversations is food sits just right Right in the center of the intersection of so many things that we care about. So, Dan, to find out more about these dinners, your website at independentsector.org. Yep, independent um, Good then place to learn. Yep. It's associated with our conference, which is going to be the 25th through the 27th of October. And that website, you can go right to it, is um, Common Future 2017. Mm-hmm. CommonFuture2017.org. Common and uh, we'll be doing dinners in Detroit um, on Thursday the 26th. So uh, love to have Excellent. folks attend. Yeah, it'd be great. And Bren, your website. Uh, for more information, you can go to brenherrera.com, and that's spelled B-R-E-N-H-E-R-R-E-R-A. And it's this, it's the house of Bren, La Casita de Bren, where I uh, encourage, share, inspire. My life is really about inspiring people to go out and live Can't well, be happy, uh, do really, really <laughs> good, and use our voices. You know, we have these platforms, whatever your platform is. You know, Billy's is Share Our Strength and the podcast then use that platform in the best way, most efficiently, that you will get people involved. And I have, I think I have a strong enough bilingual voice where people can, if not immediately like what I have to say, maybe pause for a moment in their day, in their week, in their month, in their year and say, gosh, that statement or that little soundbite, you know, really impacted me and maybe I could do something about it. So. And as a result of this conversation, I hope that our listeners, in addition to going on iTunes and listening to our, our other podcasts and ranking them and rating them and, and sharing them, I, yes, hope they'll, <laughs> I hope they'll think about ways in which food represents a commonality and ex- how food can bring people together. You've each For talked sure. about some yeah. very powerful ones, but uh, it is something that it's, you know, if we're, if we're fortunate and we're blessed, it's part of our lives at least three times a day. So yeah, my gosh. Uh, if anybody has examples of how food has made a difference or how you think it could bring people together in a divided time, uh, we'd love to hear it here on Add Passion and Stir. I've been with Bren Herrera. Thank you so much, Bren, for being part of this and for being such an amazing Share Our Strength supporter. Oh, you know that I love what you're doing, Billy. And I, I, I'm so glad that I didn't get choked up talking about the work that I've done with um, Cooking Matters years ago. But I'm, I'm very passionate about what you do, and I'm so I'm honored to be a part of the social team and just kind of spreading the word in the best way that I can. You know? And Cooking Matters is our nutrition education yep. program. I imagine you are very effective. Oh, it was amazing. That's teacher. another conversation. It's but powerful. I had it's so powerful. much fun teaching these women how to how to use their money and how to cook. Yeah. Uh, and Dan Cardinale, longtime leader in this sector from his work in Guadalajara that we heard about community organizing to being the CEO of Communities and Schools to now running independent sector, which so many of us, including Share Our Strength recently, uh, became a part of because it uh, it really stands up and advocates for the rights of all the organizations in the social sector. Dan, thanks for being here. Thank you, Billy, and uh, thank you for your leadership. I have uh, been following behind you, learning as I go for probably the last 20 years or so, and uh, you have um, innovated in numbers of ways that I think, uh, I hope social sector scholars pay attention to. The No Hungry Kid campaign is a brilliant strategy for making government work better for kids and families in America, really delivering in the social contract. Yeah, so uh, really well, huge. For, for an almost lifeguard, an almost lawyer, and an <laughs> almost, almost priest, priest. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing too bad. Not um, too shabby. So I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks. Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Billy.